Welcome to Straight from the Author, a podcast that gives you a front row seat as leading authors discuss their books at a Warren Public Library. In this episode, award-winning mystery author Donald Levin discusses the elements of a good mystery and reads a selection from his series set in Metro Detroit. Let's listen. What um, I'm planning to do is um, talk about what mysteries are, um, give you a sort of uh, framework for fitting different kinds of mysteries into an overall picture. Um, talk about why you like mysteries. I'm assuming that you like mysteries, or you're, you're here. You wouldn't be here if you didn't. Um, and I'm going to talk about my own work. Um, I have four mystery novels, and a fifth coming out uh, in another month or so. Uh, so we'll talk about my novels, and I'll tell you a little bit about them, where they come from, uh, where the ideas came from, what they're about, um, and I'll, I'll give you a little introduction to the new novel that's coming out soon. I'm a uh, retired professor of English. Uh, I used to teach at Marygrove College in Detroit. Um, I was dean of faculty for uh, the last few years. I was there for 20 years. Um, before that, I was a professional writer for about 25 years. Um, not writing stuff like this, but writing speeches, uh, sort of business uh, consultation kind of writing. I wrote speeches, I wrote grants, I wrote uh, news releases, I wrote video scripts, I wrote just about everything you can think of. Um, and I really polished my, uh, my writing chops, as I like to think about it. Um, I'm, as, I'm also, as I mentioned, the author of a series of books set in Ferndale, which is where I live. Um, so mysteries are a subject that I'm um, very interested in, very excited about. Um, I think that when, when you read a mystery, um, you get to dance on the dark side a little bit. You get, to, you get to hang out with people that you wouldn't ordinarily get to hang out with, uh, sort of disreputable people, criminals maybe, um, and you get to do it safely. You, right. So there's no, you know, there, there's no risk to yourself. Uh, it's, it's better to read about somebody getting uh, caught in a blind alley than to actually get caught in a blind alley yourself. But it's exciting. It's exciting. Um, and I think that excitement is, is part of what a lot of people like. One of the things about mysteries is that they're very they tend to be very character-driven. Uh, mine are, are very character-driven. Uh, it's not so much the puzzle in mine, although that does keep you reading, but it's also the, um, the relationships that uh, are important for you, I think, important for me anyway. And that's why if you don't care about the people, you don't care about who done it. You're not, you're not that interested in, in, in the crime. Um, can't tell you how many books I've started, uh, both uh, in print and on tape, where you, you, you sort of go along and then you find yourself saying, I don't care about these people. I'm, I'm not really interested in what's going on here. So character means a lot for, uh, for these kinds of books. Um, good mysteries are always about something. Uh, they're, they're, they're about the, the puzzle, about the problem, but they're never just about the problem. They're always uh, at some level about, uh, as Henning Mankel, who's one of my favorite uh, authors, he's a, he's a Swedish mystery writer. He wrote the Wallander series. I don't know if you've, if you've heard of those or, or seen those on TV. There's a Kenneth Branagh Wallander series, which is sort of awful. Uh, there, it's a, it's a, in my opinion, it's, a, it's, a, it's a not a good adaptation of the, um, of the books. There's a Swedish series, which you can find on Netflix sometimes. You can find it in the library. They may be in the library here. That's a much better adaptation. Um, 
But uh, Henning Minkel said that he didn't write crime novels. What he wrote were novels about society seen through the lens of crime, which is a sort of interesting thing. It's a, it's a different thing. Um, and that's what I've kind of uh, I, I've taken a version of that as my own uh, motto. Um, I write um, not so much crime novels, but I write um, novels about character and relationships seen under the stresses of crime. So that there are always crimes in my book, and there's always, uh, there's, I can't say there's always violence, because violence happens off stage in my books a lot of times. Because I think it's very hard to write about violence, and I have a thing about violence. This is such a violent world, I feel very, I feel weird about contributing to it, to contributing to that sort of air of violence that um, unfortunately we live with. Um, <clears throat> but they're about, uh, they're about personalities. Um, they're about uh, people revealing their true personalities under the pressure and stress of crime. So what is a mystery? When we say we like mysteries, when we say uh, I write mysteries, when I tell people, what, what am I talking about? Um, <clears throat> I just want to, uh, I'm not gonna, not gonna dwell on this, but I just wanna give you a sort of um, um, framework for understanding the, the, the mysteries that you read, the mysteries that you watch on TV, or go to the movies and see mysteries. Um, mystery means something puzzling or secret, obviously, or hard to understand. So that a, a sort of definition for, for a mystery novel is a story uh, or a novel or a movie or TV show where there's a puzzling crime to be solved. Sometimes mystery, thriller, crime, novel, whodunit, detective story are all used to mean the same thing, but they're really different aspects of what I call crime fiction, which is fiction where the subject is unlawful acts or some kind of unlawful acts. Um, <clears throat> and these are the, the, the sort of stages of, um, of, of a crime let's say. The crime, the uh, effort to solve, uh, to, to find the perpetrator of the crime, the bringing to justice of the perpetrator, and the world set right. In other words, the, um, the, the crime is, is solved and the perpetrator is punished. So these are the, these are the elements of a, of a, of a crime, um, uh, let's, let's call it the crime framework, okay? Um, and if you look uh, under the first column, uh, crime, uh, the order of a society or the law has been violated or there's a plot to violate it. That's where, the, that's where this all starts. And what happens here? You get crime novels. You get novels about capers. You get uh, caper as in, not as in the food caper, but as in you know, the, the, the plot to rob a bank uh, as a caper. Um, <clears throat> Um, political thrillers. Um, the, um, if you've seen, um, um, I can't remember what the, uh, what the first spin-off of Law and Order was. Um, criminal, is it Criminal Intent? Law and Order Criminal Intent? You ever see that on, on TV? That's, you, you, you go more into the planning of the crime in that one because you get to see the criminals, you get to see what, what they do, how they, how they put it together. Um, and there's also a whole field of, uh, of, of fiction and movies about um, plots to uh, pull off a crime. The Italian Job, I don't know if you've ever seen The Italian Job, a couple of versions of that. But there are all kinds of uh, movies that have, uh, as, their, as their heart, 
the planning and execution of a crime. That's where this all starts. That's where this whole sort of framework starts. After you have the crime, you've got the efforts to solve the mystery or find the perpetrator. And here's where you get police procedurals, which are novels that are about how police go about, what, what their procedure is for going about um, solving crime. You get PI novels, which are private investigator novels. You get um, the, what, what we usually think of as mysteries as whodunit. Um, that's what, when we started out this conversation, you know, I, I want to know whodunit. That's the, that's the sort of basis for, um, for mystery novels. Cozies. Uh, cozies are a kind of mystery, usually set in a small town. If you think about um, um, Murder, She Wrote, those are cozies. They're set in a Cabot Cove, which has an alarmingly high murder rate, but it's a, it's a small thing. They're not, they're not very violent, usually. Uh, if you look at the cover of a cozy, you'll usually see a tea set or something like that, Little, you know, set in villages. Uh, the, uh, the, the detective figure is usually um, an amateur, uh, like um, uh, my memory is failing me today. I can't remember what Angela Lansbury's character is. Uh, Jessica Fletcher, thank you. Jessica Fletcher, thank you. Um, <clears throat> there are lots of juvenile and young adult mysteries um, that are mysteries that are specifically written for young people. <clears throat> um, there are psychological mysteries. There are locked room mysteries, which is a, a special kind of mystery where the crime has taken place inside a locked room that was locked from the inside. And the effort is to find out what happened. How did the, how did the criminal get into the locked room? How did, this, uh, how did this body get into a locked room? There are forensic mysteries like CSI. Um, and the law part of law and order, when you, when you watch law and order, uh, which I'm sure everybody has done at least seven or 800 times, when you, when you see law and order, the whole first half of it is the effort to find who did it, who, who, who's, who's the, the, the perpetrator. <clears throat> Once the perpetrator is found, the perpetrator is then brought to justice, which is the next column. Um, and you get courtroom dramas, the John Grisham kind of thing. Uh, you get legal thrillers. You get the order part of law and order. Um, that is, the, you, get, uh, you get to see um, the, the, the trial take place. Uh, and we're always sort of fascinated by trials. I, I, I have a whole sort of theory about why America is fascinated by mysteries and by, by legal dramas and by cop dramas. I, th I think we have, a, we have this, uh, this push and pull uh, between the individual and the, and the community all the time. Um, we have this uh, individualism as part of our kind of core value, but we also have the, uh, the, the, the communitarian society. Uh, we think of a frontier town all pulling together and you think of the, you know, the, um, uh, the barn raising, um, whole uh, mythos. So we have this constant kind of battle back and forth between the individual and the society. And the, the individual, the, the crime is where the individual comes in and the society is where the society sort of, you know, setting things right is where the legal dramas come in. 
Uh, and that's, it, I think the genius of law and order was that it really sort of tapped into both of those. Uh, you've got the individual crime and the individual efforts of the police detectives, um, and then you have the, uh, the, the, the law part of it. Um, and I, there's just something that resonates with us, and I think that's why it's been on so long and it has so many, um, so many spin-offs. Um, and then, at the end, the world is set right. Uh, order and law um, are reestablished, or not, as the case may be. Usually they are, but sometimes they're not. Do you think of any, anything you've read that where uh, order, the, the crooks got away, the order hasn't been established? happens very, very rarely, very rarely. <clears throat> um, so anyway, that's the, that's the sort of um, um, structure of, of the crime um, novel or the crime movie um, laid out. And what usually happens is you got a book or a movie focuses on one of those columns. Focuses on the crime, focuses on the perpetrator, or focuses on the um, the bringing, the justi bringing the perpetrator to justice. And on top of that, you've got uh, the, the, the author's concerns. What are the recurring characters? And we talked about series. Uh, who are the recurring characters? What are the recurring themes that come in, in, in the books? Uh, what are the conventions of each one of the genres? For example, in the, um, in the, in the caper novel or the caper movie, there's always a, um, a, the meeting and gathering of participants. Um, in fact, anybody see Baby Driver? No? Didn't see Baby Driver? Um, it, was a, it, was, it was really a wonderful movie. Um, it's a, if you, Baby Driver. If you haven't seen it, you, you really should just take a look at it, just because it's an interesting thing. It's a movie, yeah. Uh, came out within the last year or so, I think. Um, in the movies about this gang of criminals. Specifically, it's about the, the hero of the book is, is a guy called Baby Driver. They, they call him Baby. Uh, and he's a driver. Uh, he's a getaway driver for, uh, for his gang of crooks. Um, and the, the, I won't tell you what it's about, what it's about beyond that, but you, you see the gang of crooks get together and plot and execute the crimes. Um, and really, um, I, don't think the, uh, I don't think the authorities uh, have anything to do with this movie. They, the, the crooks take care of themselves. But that's one of the conventions of, of, uh, of uh, crime uh, novels or movies or TV shows, where you see the, the, the meeting of the, the, the crooks who are going to um, do the deed. Uh, you've got the, the execution of the deed. You've got all kinds of double crosses and triple crosses and people um, uh, turning each other in and doing all kinds of things. And then finally you have the, the resolution. Or The Sopranos. Uh, everybody's seen the, yeah, thanks. Everybody's seen The Sopranos, right? Or you've heard of The Sopranos anyway. It's about a gang of crooks, you know, the gang of thugs. Um, and we find Tony, or some people find Tony, um, uh, a very interesting character. And, that was, and, and they find the, the, the thugs who, who Tony uh, hangs out with um, in his gang to be uh, interesting characters. I mean, some people think they're psychopaths and some people think they're interesting characters. But... Um, <coughs> And on top of that, so we've got, the, we've got the author's concerns, we've got the conventions, the, what, are those, what are the things that we expect to see in these kinds of, uh, in these kinds of things? Uh, and we also have setting, which is an, always an important part. Uh, setting is uh, the, the place where, these, where the events happen. 
um, and uh, it supplies the, the, the places, the names, the streets, uh, the history, the, uh, the, the media, the politics. It suggests actions arising from places. Um, it suggests characters particular to places, and it helps uh, set the tone of the book in general. Um, <clears throat> okay, so um, the, the question then for me is, how do I fit into all this? Uh, where, where do my books fall? Um, my books are in the second category. Um, they are, uh, the first three books are police procedurals because the detective was a policeman. He's a police detective. His name is Martin Pruce. Uh, he's a fictional detective with the Ferndale Police Department, which is a, there is a real Ferndale Police Department, of course, but I made up, I mean, I fictionalized it. Uh, I use it imaginatively. Um, <clears throat> so the, the first book is Crimes of Love, uh, and that's about the search for a little girl uh, who goes missing off the streets of Ferndale one cold autumn night. Uh, and the detective Martin Proust is called along with all the other, uh, the whole police department is called to find uh, what happened to her. Uh, and the story takes off from there. Uh, the Baker's Men is the second book, um, also set in Ferndale. He's also a uh, police detective in this book. Um, in that book, a shooting happens in a bakery in Ferndale late one Sunday night. Uh, one, one person is killed, another person is uh, seriously injured, and there was a third individual who was involved, but he escaped, uh, so we don't know what happened to him or if he's the perpetrator. We don't, we don't know what's going on there. But uh, Proust was called out to investigate the crime and wound, wound, up, wound up being his crime. Uh, not his crime, but he, he, his case. Uh, Guilt and Hiding is the third book in this series. Um, that is about a um, van that carries handicapped uh, adults that goes missing uh, one evening, along with one of the passengers and the driver. So a young man in a wheelchair uh, and the driver, uh, they were on their way to go to the doctors and they disappeared. Nobody knows what happened to him. So Proust is called out to investigate that. And this hits home for Martin Proust because he has a um, son who is uh, 17 when the series starts. Each of these books takes place uh, in, in a different year. Um, he has a son who's multiply handicapped, who is profoundly multiply handicapped. His name, son's name is Toby. And Toby is a very important character in the Martin Proust series. Um, Toby is actually based on our grandson, uh, whose name was Jamie. Uh, Jamie was profoundly uh, multiply handicapped. Um, and Toby is a um, very loving and careful uh, portrait of Jamie. Um, uh, Jamie is unfortunately no longer with us. Uh, he passed away a few years ago. But um, Toby is a way for me to keep him alive, uh, and it's a way for me to celebrate uh, the, um, the benefits of having uh, a special needs child. Uh, a lot of people just don't understand. I mean, if you have a special needs child in your family, uh, then you know, but many people aren't, just really aren't aware of what a special needs child uh, means. 
uh, I remember my parents uh, saying, oh, what a tragedy when they were talking about Jamie, because I never met him. Uh, but there's, it, and, and people tend to focus on the, the tragic part of it, but there's an, an enormous amount of benefit, an enormous amount of advantages that uh, come with having a special needs child. Um, and you, you never see, or I've never seen, I've done a lot of reading in my life, I've never seen a, a portrait, an, an accurate sympathetic portrait of a, of a young man like Jamie in anything I've read, uh, or on TV, or in the movies. So one of the things I wanted to do with this series is uh, create that kind of a portrait so that uh, people can, um, can look at the, the sort of joy that someone like Jamie or Toby brings to your life and, uh, and appreciate it. And I've had a lot of people who, who tell me that one of the most touching elements of this uh, series is the relationship between Toby and Martin Proust. Um, um, and, and one of the things that Martin Proust reflects on um, throughout this series is um, exactly how much his son Toby adds to his life, how much he can learn from Toby. Um, and Toby tries, to, Toby tries to teach his father as much as he can. Uh, Toby, like Jamie, uh, is, is profoundly handicapped. Uh, he, he, can't, he, has, he has cerebral palsy, uh, can't speak, can only articulate sounds, can't articulate words, can't sit up by himself, can't take care of his daily needs, can't dress himself. But uh, is Toby, like Jamie, is the incredibly loving character. And one of, the, uh, one, of the, one of the things for me about this series is that uh, I get to, I get to um, make Jamie live again through Toby. And Toby winds up being a, an important part of his father's life. So in addition to the mystery, in addition to the suspense, in addition to uh, the crime and all of these things, we have these wonderful relationships, uh, including the one uh, between um, Toby and his father. <clears throat> um, Martin Proust is a widower. Uh, his wife has died in an automobile accident before the series opens. He has another son um, whose name is Jason, who is uh, older. Jason is five years older than Toby. Uh, Jason has disappeared. J Jason and Toby were in the car when his mother was hit by a drunk driver, uh, which killed his mother. Um, seriously injured uh, Jason, the older brother, and Toby was in the back seat propped up by pillows, uh, so he wasn't injured as badly. But um, Martin Proust's son blames Martin Proust for the accident because on the night of the accident, his, his, the, he had a fight with his wife and his wife threw the kids in the car and went up to, uh, to her mother's in Traverse City uh, and unfortunately never made it. Um, each book um, uses its crime as a kind of launch pad for other crimes, opens up to other crimes, for other kinds of societal issues, uh, for other kinds of stress. Uh, remember I told you that I'm, I'm very interested in the um, um, relationships and characters under the pressure of crime. That's what these books are, are really about. So they're really very character-driven. 
So with that um, as background, let's turn to The Forgotten Child, which is uh, the latest book that's been published. Um, the Forgotten Child is, um, in, the, in The Forgotten Child, Martin Proust has retired from the police department. So he's no longer a detective. But somebody comes to him and says, I have a project I think you might be interested in. There is um, a young man who disappeared 40 years ago who needs to be found. And at first Martin Proust says, eh, I'm not interested. I'm, I'm through with all that. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm spending time with my son Toby. Uh, I'm waiting to see what's the next thing is going to bring me in my life because he's a relatively young man. He's under 50. Um, but then the more he starts to think about it, the more he gets, he warms to the idea of this project. And um, he starts to think that maybe it would be a good thing to keep himself busy, to go back to uh, investigating. He starts to realize through the course of the book that that's really what he's good at, what he's best at. In addition, one of his friends from the uh, police department, uh, uh, the youth detective named Janie Cahill, uh, asks him to look into the disappearance of, a, of the father of a troubled young woman who um, goes to school in Ferndale. She's gotten into trouble by setting off smoke bombs in the hallway uh, in Ferndale Middle School. So uh, she's in a lot of trouble, and it turns out that her father has disappeared, which is one of, and, and her, her father and mother were separated, and she lived with her father. So Janie says, you know, can you, can you help me out here? Can you, can you look, at, look into this for me? And he kind of likes Janie, and uh, they sort of have this uh, on-again, off-again thing. So he says, he says sure. So his, he, he gets his investigation juices flowing once he starts to, once he starts to get into this. Uh, his search takes him back to the 1970s. Um, in, uh, this takes, the, the book itself takes place in the current day, but his search takes him back to the 1970s, to the Cass Corridor art scene in Detroit, uh, and to the history of Ferndale. Um, I started out uh, writing this book wanting to talk about a historical event that was real, uh, that, that was important in Ferndale. And my next door neighbor is the president of the Ferndale Historical Society. So he gave me a lot of information about a fire that took place in Ferndale in 1975. Is anybody from Ferndale by any chance? No? Um, sometimes when I give talks, uh, people, people tell me that they were born in Ferndale. Or, um, I was giving a talk once, and uh, a woman came up to me afterwards and said, you know, my, hu my husband was a fireman in Ferndale at that time. Uh, so we, there, there's all kinds of interesting connections that may, may happen and may not happen. Um, so um, there, was a, there was a fire called the Ostrander Building Fire, which wiped out uh, half a block in downtown Ferndale on Nine Mile. If you, if you know Ferndale, you know, uh, Nine Mile and Woodward is sort of the, uh, the, the, the downtown of Ferndale. And the fire in 1975 wiped out half of, the, uh, half of one side of the downtown block. So I wanted to talk about this fire. And I wove the fire into the mystery. Uh, I won't tell you how, but um, Martin Proust, uh, through his investigation, discovers 
a lot of information about the fire. Because in real life, the fire was never, um, uh, was never solved. They never figured out how the fire started, this enormous fire. So I used the fire for my own purposes, of course. Um, I turned truth into fiction. Um, I changed the details, I changed the circumstances, I changed uh, the characters who were involved. Uh, I changed the name of the fire. Um, I gave a lot of, uh, I, 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 I fictionalized it. So we've got this young man who's, who's missing, who's been missing for 40 years, and Proust um, uh, tries to find him. Uh, so that's what this book is about. So what I'd like to do is read a little bit of The Forgotten Child and give you a, a flavor for it. Um, I'm going to read the beginning part of it, and uh, I'm not going to, obviously I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's a long book, but I'm, going to, I'm also going to read you a little bit about uh, um, Toby so that you get a sense of uh, who Toby is and what Toby means to his father. This takes place on Monday, February 8th, 2011. Starts in the evening. The dead woman looked nothing like herself. Martin Proust stared down at the lifeless form. He could never understand people who talked about how good the dead looked in their caskets, done up in their best clothes as though they had just lain down for a nap in a fancy bed in the midst of a party. To Proust, the dead in funeral homes looked more like bad caricatures of themselves. Heavily rouged waxen statues created by makeup artists who worked from photographs and rarely knew them in life. It must be particularly hard to get their mouths right, he thought. The mouths were wrong on every embalmed corpse he had ever, he had ever seen, like this one. Her lips in life had been full and in constant motion in an intelligent animated face, but in death they were pinched and twisted as though in serious disapproval of her current state. Well, thought Proust, who could blame her? Her husband, Ed Blair, said her suffering at the end had been heroic. When Proust called him after hearing the news, Blair said his wife made the decision herself because she could no longer stand the cancer that ravaged her body. She was tied to life support, Blair said. I was right there by her side. She looked up at me and gave me a nod. She said, I'm ready. I could hardly hear she was so weak, and the pain Christ, I don't know how she stood it. Now Proust reached in the casket to pat a stiff arm and say a silent goodbye to the woman who had been Debbie Blair. Then he moved along so the next mourner could pay her respects. So beautiful, he heard a woman behind him murmur as she passed the casket. He looked around the past viewing room. He couldn't remember seeing so many people here for a funeral. There were members of the Ferndale Police Department who came to support their colleague, Ed Blair, Officials from city government. Blair's father was a former police chief and many people remembered him. The Blair's friends and relatives, Debbie's, Debbie's friends and coworkers from Providence Hospital where she worked as an OB nurse, and others Proust didn't recognize, all waiting for the service to start. He spotted Blair across the room standing with Reg Trombley and Tony Tulio. Tony leaned away to shake hands with someone and Proust saw Janie Cahill with them. Once they had been his closest friends in the department, now he couldn't remember the last time he had seen them. Except for Janie, he remembered their last time together too well. Tremblay spotted him. Martin, 
too late to retreat. Pruce approached and gave Blair a hug. Ed, he said, how are you doing? Blair held on for a few moments, and Pruce felt the man stifling a sob. Then Blair pulled away and wiped the back of his hand across his eyes. I know you understand all this, Blair said. Pruce gave a reluctant shrug of agreement. Trombley wrapped his arms around Pruce and said, how you doing, man? Long time no see. Then Tulio took his turn, pulling Pruce into an embrace that was still brutally strong, even though Tulio's health problems had forced his own retirement from the department. Janie Cahill gave him a nod and developed a sudden interest in the floral arrangement on the table beside her. To Blair, Pruce said, how's Eve? Not good. She's taken this hard. Blair glanced around the room. His 14-year-old daughter sat huddled in a corner with Debbie's mother. Of course, Pruce said, poor kid. Yeah, she's strong, like her mom. Whatever I can do, Pruce said, all I have to do is ask. Pruce couldn't bring himself, uh, Blair couldn't bring himself to reply. He nodded, holding off more tears. A man and woman walked up to him, the woman sobbing. Blair turned to comfort her. The bereaved giving succor to mourners. It was a role people who took care of others fell into naturally. How's retirement, my brother? Trombley asked, his handsome face lit with a smile. Never been better. You're a sight for sore eyes. Do you miss the job, Tony Tulio asked. Do I miss it, Pruce echoed, pretending to consider the question. Let me think. The infighting, the backstabbing, the everyday brutality and stupidity. Well, Trombley said, when you put it like that, I do miss you guys. He looked from one to the other, his glance flicking on Janie Cahill for a moment before returning to Trombley. What are you doing with yourself, Tony Tulio asked. Spending time with Toby, naturally. Playing a lot of music, taking care of things around the house I let slide for years, enjoying not being on the firing line or in the line of fire, as the case may be. Wasn't for this ticker, Tulio said, pointing to his chest. I'd still be out there. You're lucky. You got to choose when to go. That's not entirely true, Proust thought. His position in the detective bureau had grown less and less secure over the past few years. Nick Russo, the chief of detectives and his ex-father-in-law, tried to railroad him out several times. Once Russo was promoted to chief of police, Proust knew it was a matter of time before Russo succeeded. Better to leave than get pushed out. I still can't believe you're not there, Trombley said. Every morning I expect to see you in your office. I don't see you for a second, I think, Martin's not in yet. Did he call in sick? Takes a few before I remember. New chief's treating you okay, Pruce asked. Trombley looked across the room at Stanley Chrysler, the new chief of detectives, standing in conversation with Nick Russo and William Warnock, the current and future chiefs of the department. Warnock retired six months before Pruce. It was his retirement that prompted Pruce to leave. Warnock protected Pruce from Russo's crazier rants. Without Warnock to cover for him, Proust knew Russo's wrath against him would be unstoppable. Russo and Chrysler were staring straight at Proust with the full-on hairy eyeball. Talk later, Trombley said. Got it. But hey, don't be a stranger. Call me. Will do, Proust said. An awkward silence settled over them. As though sharing a sign, Trombley and Tony Tulio faded away. That left Proust standing with Janie Cahill, who was looking everywhere except at him. Alone at last, Proust said. His attempt at a joke fell flat. She turned her gaze toward him with a pained smile. Hi. Hi. How have you been, she said. Good, he said, good. Toby okay? He's good too. That's good. Then she said, I haven't heard from you for a while. No, he admitted, it's true. Any special reason? 
Before he could answer, a young man in a black suit approached them and murmured, the service is about to begin. Please be seated. Janie looked at Bruce and said, shall we sit over there with Reg and Tony? She turned to make her way toward Trombley and Tulio. Instead of following her, Proust maneuvered through the crowd to the lobby of the funeral home and continued out the side door to the parking lot. A friend he knew in college used to call this an Irish goodbye, leaving by the side door without telling anyone you were going. Must have been his mother's influence, he thought. Her people were from Donegal. His father claimed to have been German. Nobody really knew what genes combined to create that monster. Proust had made an Irish goodbye from his family, so why not from this service? He walked through the, the iron-hard cold of a Michigan February evening to his explorer. Inside, he started it and cranked up the heater. Cold air blew through the vents. A Ford F-250 pulled into the parking place next to his. Two men he recognized as patrol officers stepped out of the pickup. They wore civilian clothes and walked up to the door of the funeral home, talking and laughing in puffs of white vapor. Life goes on. Except for Martin Proust, retiree, former detective, now stalled, sitting by himself at night in an SUV in the parking lot of Spalding and Curtin funeral directors. His old colleagues were inside, a community of the living paying their respects to a, a bereft friend's dead wife. Proust was, quite literally, out in the cold. Could be worse, he thought. He could be lying in the coffin inside, having everyone say how lifelike he looked from a mouth that seemed grafted onto his face from another body. He glanced at the clock on the dash, 7.30. It had been dark for a while and could have been midnight. He sat for another few moments, allowing himself one last shiver of self-pity, then put the car into gear and backed out of the parking place and wheeled onto the lot onto Nine Mile Road. He had someplace else to be. So that's the end of the first chapter. The second chapter, he goes to the place where he's going to be, where he, he sort of gets his, uh, gets his assignment, uh, which he in initially says, uh, I don't want to do it. It's going to be too hard to find somebody who has been missing for 40 years. And then he, he starts to think about it, and he starts to think it might be a nice thing to do. Um, after that, that is, after he, he goes to another restaurant in Ferndale, and he meets... Um, he meets uh, these people who are going to give him his project. And then, as he usually does, he goes to see his son. Um, one of the things that happens with Martin Proust is that he usually starts the day by going over to see his son, getting him up and getting out of bed, getting ready for his son's day program. And then he comes over at night and kisses his son goodnight, maybe helps give him his bath, uh, and, and takes care of him as much as he can. His son lives in a group home because um, Proust couldn't take care of him by himself because the boy's needs are so, are so great. So to his regret, uh, he, he, can't, um, he can't stay with, uh, with uh, Martin Proust, so that he lives in a group home, and he, that's where he goes. Group home is near his house. So he goes over to Toby's, which he typically does at the end of uh, every night. Toby was wide awake. Proust leaned over the bed to enter his son's field of vision. Hey, you, he said and took the boy's twisted hand in his own. Proust gave a gentle squeeze and sensed a tiny, almost imperceptible pressure in return. There were people, doctors, even some of his teachers, who thought Toby didn't have enough control over his body to squeeze his father's hand voluntarily. They discounted it as reflex activity. Proust knew they were wrong. He knew what his son could do, even if others wouldn't admit it. Tony's abilities were, uh, Toby's abilities were subtle, it was true, but they were present if you knew how to appreciate them. 
Proust did. He bent over and kissed the boy's cool forehead. How's my sweet boy? No vocal reply. Toby blinked and focused on his father's face. At times like this, with the unbroken eye contact Toby was making, Proust's love for his child was almost overwhelming. The eye specialist who removes Toby's cataracts when he was only a week old said Toby could see only peripherally out of the corners of his eyes, and the steady deterioration of his optic nerve would mean he would eventually go blind. Sometimes, like now, Toby seemed to look right at his father, his almond-shaped brown eyes examining Proust's features with the same loving care that Proust examined Toby's. Because Toby rarely made eye contact, the times when Toby looked right at him seemed particularly consequential. Proust reached out and laid a cupped hand on Toby's cheek, warm and stubbled. When he first retired, Proust hoped he might take his son back to his house in Ferndale to live. After Toby stayed overnight a few times, Proust realized that wouldn't be possible. With his visual limitations, his profound cerebral palsy that left him unable to care for his own personal needs, his cognitive delays, his microcephaly, his seizure disorder, the delicate bird bones of his legs that couldn't hold up his weight and broke if too much pressure was applied during physical therapy. With all that, Toby needed more constant care than Proust could manage as a single parent. Toby had to stay in his group home. Proust queued up three Judy Collins albums on Toby's CD player, Toby's usual music to fall asleep by, and sat in the chair beside the bed. He held his son's hand, stiff and bent from the contractures of the cerebral palsy, but with slender, graceful fingers. They listened to Toby's favorite singer. The high notes of her powerful alto in the early recordings made the boy smile, and he sang along to the silvery soprano of her later songs with his own foghorn vocalizations. Her voice calmed him, and as he eased into sleep, Toby calmed his father as well. And it goes on, I'll stop there, it goes on this, this chapter. Bruce is now reflecting on, on what he saw at the funeral home. He's reflecting on what uh, his friends at the, at the dinner told him or asked him to do. Um, and he just sort of, uh, as he always does with, with Toby, he, he, he chills out um, for the evening. So um, I think I'll stop there. For more information on Donald Levin and his work, visit donaldlevin.com. Straight from the Author has been brought to you by My Warren. To hear more podcasts like this, visit mywarren.org. Again, that's miwarren.org.